Welcome to Hashtag Finance. I'm your host, Barrington Miller, and this is sponsored by Public Entrepreneur Magazine. I'm here with Jack Ben-Simon. How are you today? Good. Pleasure to be here. Good to see you. First question, right off the hop. Why does it sound like you have three first names? <laughs> it's actually just one long last name, Ben-Simon, and then Jack Jacobs. So it's really just one. So what would you like to talk about today? So I think we should talk about uh, digital currency regulation, mm. where things are around the world and what's happening and sort of uh, distinguishing between blockchain and digital currency, because I think there's a lot of confusion in the marketplace. Well, there's a lot of confusion in this room. In this room. <laughs> about um, it. And just where things are going generally and what the trends are, what we're seeing. And I speak really from a client perspective in terms of what I'm seeing real time in the marketplace. Tell us the difference. So blockchain, otherwise known as distributed ledger technology, is a way of organizing information on blocks, right? It's like different levels. And the most important thing, it's immutable, which means you can't erase the data on there. So the big thing is with records. So with records management, it's all permanent. And so you can't change the records. And so with that, that minimizes fraud. It minimizes misrepresentation. It minimizes all types of uh, situations where you change data and you know what the original data was. So distributed ledger technology is very powerful. So I always say that blockchain is going to be like DOS. DOS powered everything. It yeah. powered Windows, and which led to applications like PowerPoint, et cetera. And same thing with blockchain. It will power a lot of these applications going forward. Blockchain powers digital currency, as we all know. And digital currency is just one specific use case of the blockchain. That's what people don't understand. So I'm going to jump in right here because some of our listeners are uh, might be new to the space. And sure. when you say blockchain, people automatically think crypto. They right. think uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, there's all these bud words. And, so, uh, so, that, so that's the challenge, right? So blockchain yeah. powers digital currency. Digital currency is the one that was cryptography. So without blockchain, you don't have digital currency. You don't have cryptography is actually a very arcane branch of mathematics, advanced yes. mathematics. And so you need cryptography to create the digital currency with blockchain. So blockchain can survive without digital currency. Digital currency cannot survive without blockchain. Perfect. That's the greatest way to, that's probably the easiest way to look at it. No, that's really good. Um, okay, sorry. Continue. So, so there's a lot of applications of, of digital currency. We've heard of ICOs and security token offerings, all that. But, but basically, what digital currency has been used in the last little while is it's been a way to raise capital in the in the private equity markets. And so, we've had the ICO market, which basically peaked in 2017, 2018. We had that part of the market. Took it a slide for a while. Uh, and now what you're seeing are, is, is this thing called security token offerings, yeah. which is really a security on the blockchain. Okay. Um, and what that does is, is it eliminates a lot of the sort of middle people in there. And so by having a security on the blockchain, before you don't get share certificates. And so now if you're a private company and you're looking to raise capital, this is another way to raise capital uh, using the blockchain. So the CSE is heavily involved in that aspect, and the way that I've told people is to treat the uh, the token as you would a certificate, except it's highly juiced, highly on steroids, very very efficient, um, and a lot safer. So so you guys are dealing with what's called security tokens, and there are also what used to in the ICO days they had utility tokens, 
Yeah. And so utility <laughs> tokens, you know, 98% of them are underwater now. Yes. But a lot of them really didn't have any functional use. I mean, we're not really talking about Bitcoin and Litecoin and what I call the five fun uh, functional cryptos. So utility tokens, I, I always give the example of Canadian Tire fiat currency. When you go to Canadian Tire, you pay $100, you get like a dollar back or $2. Right. And that is a true utility token. They don't call it a utility token, but you can only use the fiat currency within its own ecosystem can't sell it on eBay or PayPal or wherever else. That's you can right. only use it with its own ecosystem. So similarly, those utility tokens that were in the ICO days, you can pretty much only use it within their own ecosystems. Uh -huh. The challenge was a lot of them didn't really have any functional value. So, you know, you buy, you know, the, the ICO in, in Munchies or, or uh, some of these ICOs are really, you didn't even know what they did. So they were able to raise capital, but they didn't really build anything of value. There was no value within the ecosystem. And the other challenge was liquidity. Right, so it's like the Russian stock market many years ago. You can get in, but you can't get out. Hotel well, California. That's, well, that's right. It's one-way liquidity. <laughs> right. So, what good is that for the investor? So now, with security token offerings, uh, it's a different way of raising capital. And people always say, "Well, is that like is that like an IPO?" Well, in some ways, that's some way no. First of all, there isn't a prospectus. There's an offering memorandum, uh, but it requires disclosure, et cetera. But it's a way for private companies in the private markets to access a different means of raising capital. And also it enables global distribution, which is a significant benefit. And that's what digital currency enables. So now when you, you know, if you raise money privately, for example, in Toronto or Ontario or Canada, you, you may be limited to Canadian investors. But when you raise money through digital currency, for example, security token offering, otherwise known as an STO, you now have a whole global marketplace at your fingertips. So you may have somebody in Malaysia, for example, who likes your idea, likes your platform, likes your technology, wants to buy $1,000 worth of your token. You wouldn't have had access to that Malaysian investor before through an offering memorandum. So it really opens up your world that way. Now, when you say opening up your world, you're opening it up in a good way and possibly a negative way. Right. So because, now you're talking about... Now, because we don't necessarily know... Right, so now we're talking about jurisdictional limitations, yes. which is a good point. So what a lot of these STO issuers have done is they've deliberately blocked the U.S. from participation. In other words, a lot of them don't want investors to participate because there isn't a formal regulatory regime to deal with security token offerings in the United States. Now, the SEC has been talking about it. They haven't really developed any legislation, but their principle is that 99% of tokens out there look and smell like security tokens. And so if you're going to buy a security token, you better be registered with the SEC and file your, you know, your, your Reg D exemptions and all that. So this is why a lot of these STO issuers have deliberately avoided the U.S. from participation. And in some cases, they've avoided Canada as well because mm -hmm. they don't want to be captured in the OSC regime. Right. Right. So what they're doing is they're going after Europe. And in some cases, they're registering in Singapore, which has made it very friendly for digital currency issuers to raise capital in that area. And, we, you know, it should be noted that you can't understand digital currency without understanding Asia. And 60% of all digital currency is actually traded actively in Japan. And another 0.5% uh, is Canada, 8% is the U.S., and then Asia is pretty much the rest. You know, you have China, you have Hong Kong, you have uh, Singapore, et cetera. So you can't really uh, be successful in the digital currency world unless you penetrate Asia. Who does this benefit the most in this ecosystem? Will it benefit the investor the most? Will it benefit the company? Will it benefit 
the jurisdiction that's operating in? So it depends on who your audience is. So this is a new way of raising capital. So you have STO issuers that are part of the ecosystem. You have STO platform providers like Polymath, yeah. for example, which is in our own backyard here. You have Securitize, which is another STO platform. They actually create the token for the issuer. Everything from the AML compliance to the KYC compliance. So they benefit as well. Uh, you also have very slowly regulators that are looking at this. So, for example, Blockstation, one of my clients, uh, they are the only company right now that have enabled a any regulated traditional stock exchange to go fully digital in less than seven days or less. And right now, you only have two countries, Barbados and Jamaica, Jamaican Stock Exchange and the Barbados Stock Exchange, who are the only two national stock exchange that basically have a regulated marketplace to actively trade these security token offerings. Now that's really important as an investor because you want protections. Right. So if there's any scam or fraud in these regulated exchanges, right now you don't have protections. So you go to a, a, what they call a decentralized exchange where typically there's a lot of sellers in that exchange, not enough buyers. If anything happens, you're not protected. Let's take the example of Quadriga, okay? Mm -hmm. In our own backyard. That was a wallet provider, some call it an exchange. They were completely. We, we would not call that an exchange. Well, some some have, some customers have called it an exchange. They well, said Quadriga CX well, was an exchange, yeah. just a wallet. Yeah, no, that's it's all it uh, was, right. No, it's but uh, what's interesting about Quadriga is that they weren't regulated in any way. They weren't regulated as a money service business. They weren't regulated with the OSC. In no way did they have any regulatory touch points. And so when the, when the stuff went down, when when obviously wallet holders couldn't access their capital. They had no remedies. Right. There are no remedies available at all. So this is not favorable for the investor. What's favorable for the investor is for them to have a liquidity platform where it's regulated, like, like a national securities exchange, for example, the Jamaican Stock Exchange, the Barbados Exchange, which has a clearly defined infrastructure for regulation that enables these tokens to properly trade and to provide for liquidity for buyers and sellers. And that's exactly what the Canadian Securities Exchange is, exactly. is working on. Uh, and that's what we need. We need more of those kinds of exchanges. So, uh, really quickly, I just want to let our listeners know that for more information on Blockstation and the Jamaican Stock Exchange, please check out the interview and podcast I did with Jay Waterman. So, um, just a plug for another yeah, uh, another hashtag that's finance. Yeah. Um, does regulatory arbitrage exist in the digital currency space? Absolutely. So let's just define what regulatory arbitrage is. The regulatory yeah. arbitrage is is um, taking advantage of regulations from one jurisdiction or the other, where in one jurisdiction it's lax, in another jurisdiction it's more heavy. And so you take advantage of the differences. And so in the U.S., obviously, uh, people are avoiding the U.S. because there's no formal regulation developed, and they're just treating it like a security, which doesn't really help issuers. Right. So what you're seeing is that um, these a lot of these issuers are going to places like Estonia or Malta. Malta is now called Malta's, Blockchain Island. Mal Malta is right? a hotspot. It's a hotspot. So it's such a hotspot that the biggest exchange in the world called Binance, as you know, they moved their head office from Hong Kong all the way to Malta because it's completely unregulated. And they've made their life very easy in Malta. So they've given them tax breaks. They've developed some legislation which has made them easier to operate. So here you have the biggest exchange in the world that just moved everything from, from Hong Kong to Malta. And you ha are also having more exchanges coming up in places like Estonia, which are making it very blockchain friendly and also digital currency friendly to enable exchanges to operate, to have low barriers to entry, to have an exchange. Because if you want to open an exchange in other jurisdictions, there's a whole slew of regulation, particularly in Singapore. But, where don't, you, but don't you want to follow? Like, don't 
Don't you want to exist in a place that has those regulations? Some that do. Has those- as, as an exchange, some do, but they also want low barriers to entry, right? So if you have high barriers to entry, that can often make it more difficult for customers to open account for know your client regulations, for anti-money laundering regulations, et cetera. So yes, by and large, that's true. But the more friction you provide and the more intention you provide, Typically, your require, your capital requirements go up, your costs go up, your trade surveillance costs go up. And so that makes it more difficult for companies to, in some ways, do business. So companies like Binance are looking for easy ways to do business. They just opened an exchange in Guyana, okay? Mm-hmm. Guyana is not a regulated regime, as we know. And so, so, yeah, so regulatory arbitrage exists where you're looking at companies that are uh, listing in jurisdictions that have the least regulatory compliance, but also at the same time, companies that want an air of legitimacy, to your point, want to list on regulated exchanges. So, for example, in Jamaica, you now have uh, a real estate STO issuer that I believe they raised about $20 million mm-hmm. that now it's going to be traded on the Jamaican Stock Exchange. Well, if anything goes astray, they have regulatory protections because right. they have the Jamaican Security Stock Exchange, which will which will go to the fore in that, in that area. I had a talk with our uh, VP of Listings and Regulations, Mark Faulkner, and um, his point of view and and his perspective is you want those barriers, uh, those high barriers, because it's easier to strip it back down if you want to ease it up. If it's too low and then you start adding and building and building and building on top of it, that's where the trouble comes in. You want it to be um, – you want it to be – I'm going to say difficult, but... Um, well, well, definitely. So, so barriers to entry help. There's no question about it. But, the you know, so the biggest issue that the U.S. is dealing with is is we can't get this wrong. So no. that, that's why they haven't developed a former set of regulations. Because imagine if this is the future, if securities on the blockchain is the future, and they get it wrong in the biggest capital market in the world, that's just not good for systemic risk. You have systemic risk across the board that way. Right. So they're being very methodical about developing regulations to suit this particular marketplace. And the reality is I talk to regulators all over the world on a regular basis. And it's very clear to me that the one thing they're waiting for, the catalyst, is the SEC. They're all waiting for to see what the SEC is going to do, how they're going to move, when they're going to move, and how quickly they can move on those particular protocols. So barriers to entry are favorable. Uh However, for short-term players who are looking to get in right now, um, they look at it differently. They look at strictly the business opportunity and providing their customers with the least amount of regulatory resistance to make things happen and, and to execute on their business plans. I'm going to ask you to look in your blockchain crystal ball five years from now. What do you see? What does it look like? So I, I think there are two things. One is um, blockchain will be more accepted as a leading technology. But more importantly, we will start to see uh, more and more companies raising capital using digital currency under a security token offering. For example, I just recently um, dealing with a company that's closing on a $16 million property, which is in Ontario, and that's eventually going to go as a security token. It'll list as an STO probably in the next 6 to 12 months. So these are real estate is going to be another, I think, another area, emerging area. Real estate has been coming up a lot. And that Fractionalization seems to be- of ownership, right? So think about it this way. If you, want, if you have $5,000 and you want to invest in commercial real estate, the reality is you can't do anything with five thousand right. dollars. However, if you fractionalize the ownership to that, and now you can buy a very very small percentage or piece of that hundred million dollar property, you can do that by fractional ownership. And so, by tokenizing it, by having that digital currency, it enables that. Think of the infrastructure world. So, for example, 
OMERs and teachers, they invest in all these large infrastructure projects all around the world, in Australia and Hong Kong, et cetera. These projects are typically a billion or more. So if you wanted to get involved in infrastructure projects, you can't get that, you can't really have that exposure as a retail investor. But imagine fractionalizing that ownership as well. So this is taking it to a whole other level. Now that's farther down the road. That could be five, six, seven, eight years. But who knows how quickly this could evolve. I know that fractionalization isn't something that we are necessarily talking about at the Canadian Securities Exchange yet, but um, perhaps in the in the distant future. Uh, well, here's another example. Take, for example, somebody owns a million-dollar home, which is yep. very common in Toronto. You own a million-dollar home. Yeah, and it's just a starter home. It's here. a starter home, right? And so let's, say, let's assume you don't have a mortgage. You want to take a year off of work, and you need $100,000 to to fund your travel expenses. Right now, you either sell all the home or none. Right. But imagine if you want to sell 10 pieces of your home, 10%, you can now generate $100,000 of liquidity by tokenizing that piece of your property, right? So yeah, well, you can own a piece of my property, somebody else can own a piece of my property, and then presumably as the value of that property goes up, the value of the token goes up commensurately. So this is what we call the tokenization of everything. Right, yeah. and it's really just providing a means to provide partial ownership or fractional ownership in an asset that otherwise wouldn't have the liquidity or wouldn't have the means to to be cut up that way. So, um, one of the questions that came up earlier was the um, the regulations have been delayed uh, for digital asset issuance and exchanges. Um, that's, I think, partially right. So, you can list a security token on. You can list it tomorrow on the CSC. The only problem is it's going to be treated the same way. Correct. Um, exactly. So that's so the same way a provide... regular security is treated. Exactly. But it so... can it can be it can be listed, but it doesn't have the benefits that a security token would offer. Right. So so there have been so there there's been a number of delays. The G20 was supposed to come up with some kind of a, of a framework of analysis last summer, as a matter of fact, and that got delayed. So I think you're going to have challenges with this G20 coordination around the securities piece. But the reality is that this thing is nascent. It's a very nascent technology. Uh, it's going to take time for people to understand how this works. And the biggest challenge, whether it's arbitrage or otherwise, is liquidity, right? And, and that is by far one of the most important mechanisms that investors need is essentially, if I buy this token, where can I trade it on a secondary, on an active secondary market that is going to provide investor remedies and protections? And so, you know, to your point, so yes, you can do it on exchanges now, for example, on the CSC, but issuers are not running to the forefront right now because uh, at the end of the day, does it provide the, the cost efficiencies relative to an IPO that, for example, an STO provides? And, right. and that's really the game here, right, is to, to raise capital in the most effective way to reduce your cost of capital, while at the same time making sure that your end investor has a liquidity mechanism to actively trade the token. And so we're not there yet. We're getting there. I think it's a slow process. But this is where nationally regulated exchanges like Barbados and Jamaica and other exchanges in the Caribbean that are coming to the fore, they realize a significant opportunity there, which is securities in the blockchain and companies that are going to be looking for more efficient ways of raising capital through this digital currency mechanism. And so, you know, it has very, very broad applications. For example, we're going to see blockchain and supply chain management, your question about five years from now. Yeah. IBM is spending a lot of investment dollars in the Stellar protocol, for example. Um, but because a lot of their clients in the supply chain area, 
blockchain will enable a lot of uh, efficiencies to be shored up in the supply chain management. So what it means is disintermediating uh, people within the supply chain, parties within the supply chain. So remember back when the internet came out, let's say 91, 92, what was one of the first professions that got basically wiped out? Oh, it was uh, um, booking your travel. Travel travel. agents, exactly, precisely, travel agents, right? Because you don't need them anymore. You can go to Expedia, you can go anywhere. They got immediately wiped out like almost overnight. Similarly, in the supply chain, you're going to have intermediary agents that are not going to be needed anymore. You'll be able to go direct. And that's going to have significant implications if you think of buying a car, for example. If you think of automotive supply chain management. If you think of, for example, you know, nowadays, if I want to hire a graphic designer in Venezuela, I can hire somebody in Caracas as opposed to going to somebody in Toronto. Right. Because there's a mechanism to link the two of us together. And now with blockchain, what you're going to see is those that the, the person I hire in Venezuela, once he finishes his job as a graphic designer, he'll be able to pay to real time. Right. So there's a company called LinkChain, for example, which has all this on the blockchain, which means that the buyer and seller can connect directly on the platform. And as soon as that uh, uh, supplier finishes the job, the buyer can pay the supplier immediately real time on the blockchain, immediate payment. So it's speeding up the payment mechanisms within the supply chain management. What that means is your credit risk is now lower as a supplier of services. And that's a good thing because you can manage your cash flow better. So very, very broad implications here. Well, wow, this has been uh, this has been fascinating. I'm opening up your world. <laughs> no, this is uh, I. You know what? It's um, there. There are so many applications that it can be used. I'm thinking of shipping. I'm thinking of um, shipping is a uh, massive uh, one. Of massive. mining, of royalty streaming. Um, well, let's think about one more. We we had a salad outbreak, romaine uh, lettuce, I yeah. believe it was, just a couple of months ago. So imagine the blockchain. What it enabled to do? It will enable you to pinpoint exactly where. That romaine lettuce down to the crop yield, down to the farmer, down to the location. So if that information was recorded on the blockchain, which again can't be erased, you can manage your reputational risk. You wouldn't have that kind of an outbreak, right? right? So again, supply chain management leads to reputational risk management, et cetera. So this is a significant technology, which is going to have, which is already starting to, but will have much greater impact in various industries. And the two foremost industries, I believe are financial, fintech, and supply chain. Well, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Uh, Thank you. This has been another episode of Hashtag Finance. I'm Barrington. This is Jack, and we'll see you later. Hi, it's Grace from the CFC reminding you to make sure to follow us on social media for the latest updates on our listed companies as well as new listing alerts. For more in-depth content, be sure to pick up our free quarterly magazine, Public Entrepreneur, available online at thecsc.com.